Good morning, everyone. I'm Vicky Wickram-Ratner, a partner in the Employment Law Group here at Allen & Overy. And I'm pleased to welcome you today to the latest in our series of calls in managing the workplace risks arising from COVID. I'm delighted to be joined by my partners, Sarah Henchos and Robbie Sinclair. Now, on Sunday, following several weeks of pressure from the opposition, business groups and unions, the Prime Minister announced the government's plans for leading us out of lockdown and ultimately for employers and workers back into the workplace. On Monday evening, we saw the government's detailed workplace guidance for the first time. Today, we're going to be taking you through a whistle-stop tour of the guidance framework, focusing in particular on office-based workplaces and whether we now have answers to many questions employers have been considering in recent weeks, such as whether temperature testing and PPE need to become features of our future workplaces. We will also reflect on other legal obligations that need to be factored into your return to work planning. We'll touch on labs and research facilities, but if anyone on the call is interested in the guidance as it relates to any other particular type of workplace, any one of us would be happy to have a chat with you after this call is over, and you'll find our details on the Unnobry Employment Law website. Now, as we all know, an employer has a statutory duty to do all that it reasonably can to set up a system of safe work, and then to ensure that it's implemented. A breach of these obligations can have civil and criminal consequences. It also has a duty arising both from case law and as an implied term of the employment contract to take reasonable care of the health and safety of employees and to take reasonable steps to provide a safe workplace and a safe system of work. It's with these obligations in mind that we need to digest this new guidance. In an unprecedented and ever fluctuating situation like this, it can be quite difficult to identify the measures an employer should take to, dis to discharge these responsibilities. But one important element for an employer looking to demonstrate that it's doing what is reasonably practicable and acting with reasonable care is by following government guidance. That's why this publication is so important. Of course, simply following the guidance alone is not going to discharge an employer of its duties, but it's a good starting point in helping employers to think about their risk assessments in the right way and to help identify ways of mitigating against the potential threats that are identified. So, Robbie. Um, before we get to the nitty-gritty um, of the guidance, would you mind setting the scene for us by providing us with an overview of the new guidance framework? Of course, Vicky. Um, in terms of the guidance, I think as we all know now, there are eight different types of workplace uh, guidance. There's construction, outdoor work, there's homes, there's labs and research facilities, and it goes all the way through to um, restaurants offering uh, takeaways or delivery services. Um, so it, it's up to the employer to look through the guidance um, and find the one that's appropriate to them, noting that there may be more than one set of guidance that, that is appropriate. Um, just a couple of, of points in it. The, the guidance, each guidance document is remarkably similar. Um, we've been reading through all of them. They're about 50 pages each. Uh, and the, most of it is copy and paste with slight differences. Um, in terminology, but that's definitely a, a help for employer. Um, the other point to note is that it effectively extends to everyone that could attend a workplace, so agency workers, contractors, visitors, other people, um, as well as uh, your employees are included. And then the, the unhelpful part of the guidance is that it only applies to workplaces in England, and we're waiting for the guidance that's ruled out in the other Celtic nations, Northern Ireland, uh, Scotland and Wales, which all seem to be moving in their own different ways. Robbie, speaking frankly, do you think this guidance adds much to the sorts of measures that we know employers um, have already got underway? Well, I think the first time I looked at this and I heard Boris on Sunday night, I thought this is more of an emphasis change. Um, but the more I've got into it and the more we've listened to what the trade unions and the government have been saying, so the government have been talking about people blowing the whistle straight to the HSE, I think that there is quite a noticeable change of direction. And overall, and with everything else going on with the political environment, I think it's setting a very high bar for employers. So although many of our clients have already been thinking an awful lot about these issues, they've been following the guidance as, it, as it's been going on, they've been updating their risk assessments, and they've been taking the proprietary steps, it will be really important for them to consider the detail of the guidance against these current practices. For example, on consultation, uh, having risk assessments 
um, on your website and the specific mention um, of those who are working from home in, in your risk assessments. I think these are all points we'll cover today and are all points that are important for clients to note. Um, and I think the other point is that the government have mentioned the grace period, but everything we've been reading in the papers today and, and the sort of the government spokespersons have suggested that if people are going to be getting in, uh, employees back to work, they really need to make sure that there's a safe working environment for them. Um, helpful to know, Robbie, that there is something of a grace period, but I suppose it's, it's also important for employers on the call to understand what sort of enforcement regime is going to apply um, here. Sarah, um, could you comment on that, please? Yeah, of course. Um, well, the guidance is described as non-statutory, um, but employers are regarded, uh, required sorry, to have regard to it when complying with their existing health and safety obligations. As you mentioned at the outset of the call, Vicky, the obligation is to provide a safe working environment for all employees. And of course, there's the implied duty of trust and confidence that you need to have regard to um, in that context as well. But simply following the guidance won't discharge those obligations, but of course it will assist if in evidencing compliance um, and if you're in the unfortunate circumstance of defending an employment tribunal claim in due course. Employees will be applying the guidance according to their own organisation, size, type of operation they've got, management structure and regulatory framework, um, which is why while I appreciate the frustration with the lack of clarity in the guidance on some of the key points that Robbie's identified, it is impossible to create a one-size-fits-all approach. It's important for employers to note that there is a real emphasis in the guidance um, on the government encouraging employees to report suspected or actual breaches of the guidance. So um, I'm sure everybody on the call is suddenly having a whistle-blowing alarm bell ringing in their ears. And um, reporting of these breaches will be obviously internally, but also to the health and safety executives. And the government is beefing up the resource of the HSE and its enforcement arm, so there will be more inspectors who will be able to carry out uh, spot check inspections. Um, the HSE action for non-compliance can range from providing specific advice to employers to issue enforcement notices, um, but criminal sanctions can ultimately apply for serious and material health and safety breaches. And as Robbie's mentioned, there is going to be a grace period, so I don't suspect there would be anything like that sort of level of sanction until much further down the line. And it's much more likely the HSE will start with having constructive discussions with employers about what more they should be doing um, and then issuing enforcement notices before anything more stringent happens. Um, but I think the other thing to bear in mind is that employers are going to be spurred into action by employee activism, whether through unions or other collective bodies. Um, or also just by employees taking it upon themselves to raise these issues. There's also the herd mentality approach, and having had many conversations with clients in the last few weeks, I know people are very keen to understand what others in their industry are doing. And I think many will be looking to their peers to look at what action they're taking when determining what action they will take themselves. Nobody sort of wanting to go first, but similarly nobody wanting to get left behind either. Thanks, Sarah. Um, I guess, it, you know, just thinking about employees sharing information in this way, of course, we've never been more connected um, as a sort of virtual working world. So um, I would imagine that information flow is going to move quite rapidly. Yeah. Um, okay, so, so having set the scene, let's take a look at um, some of the detail of this guidance. And as I said at the start of the call, I think most of the attendees on this call represent employers who operate out of office-based environments and, and some too who operate lab and research facilities. So perhaps as we work through the detail, we can focus on um, those particular guidance around those particular workplaces. Um, so perhaps starting with you, Robbie, um, and the topic of working from home. To what extent does this guidance encourage a continuation of working from home practices? And is there a sense of the timescale over which we might expect home working is going to continue? Yeah, uh, thanks, Vicky. I, I actually, in terms of looking at this point, I think that the, the overarching point I would have is that I see the current guidance as more than just a continuation. Um, of working from home practices. I think the guidance has gone further than that, um, unless uh, you, you've read it like some of the Tory party have. But the the a couple of key points from it are, number one, only those who cannot work from home 
uh, should go to work. And, and number two is employers should use the minimum number of staff on site to operate safely and effectively and should also consider who is actually needed on site. So you've got really clear guidance um, from the government. Um, that it really is the bare essentials, uh, if anyone that attends the office. And then you add that into the risks. We'll talk about this call that, you know, Sarah's already talked about the enforcement regime, the herd mentality that, you know, the people who are going to blow the whistle. There's an awful lot of risk for employers in terms of bringing people back in to the office. And I think if you add those two things together, that equals number one, working from home for some time, especially for those in office-based environments. And number two, I think there's going to be a reassessment um, for those in office spaces to, to look through the offices, look who is coming into the office and, and saying to them, you know, it's, you know, it's asking themselves the question of, do they really need to come into the office? Um, can they work from home? If they are coming into the office five days a week, you know, can they do that in two days a week and work from home for, for three days a week? So uh, I think it's going to be more than a continuation. And I think it is going to last for, for some time yet um, as the government really tries to keep those workers coming in safe, um, keeping the tubes under 10% of utilisation uh, and doing all of that will require, especially those in office-based environments to, to stay at home. Um, one sort of sidebar point before we move on um, is that, uh, that this sort of strong sense of, of working from home, um, also you need to consider um, you do the discrimination risks for those with protected characteristics um, and the employer's duties towards higher risk individuals and the, the government have noted that and they've also noted the, the care that employers need to have and the, the need to act reasonably towards workers with childcare issues um, and I think that's going to be something that, that employers will need to bear in mind as well. Yeah, I think that's an important point, Robbie, and I think you know it, it's possible, of course, that you may, particularly if you're having to sort of make selections about who should be working from home and who should be going in, that there may be conflicts arising between people who perhaps fall into the um, extremely vulnerable cat category and have sort of shielding needs, but also you know, trying to manage the requirements of people who fall into other protected categories and, and where there may be a duty to make reasonable adjustments. It's going to require some, some careful thinking through. Um, Robbie, a, a lot of people have been asking questions around whether, I think, with the expectation of continued homeworking, whether that means there needs to be any additional provision made to ensure that working from home practices are safe. What does the guidance have to say about that? Yeah, well, it, 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 it definitely includes yeah. it, Vicky, and I think this is going to be one of the biggest points. Um, for me personally in the guidance, especially for those in, in office-based environments. It makes clear that contact should be maintained with home workers and that their, their well-being uh, needs to be monitored. And of course, this overrides the general obligation that employers have the same health and safety responsibility to home workers as they do to other workers. And this includes the need for risk assessments and the HSE indeed has its own guidance about that. In terms of, I think, where we are at the moment, um, when, when we hit sort of mid-March and, and this sort of working from home started, uh, workers really focused on mental health management. Um, and, and I think we're, uh, you know, employers have, have done a great job on that and they've really focused on it you know, in terms of um, you know, Zoom calls, chats, regular communication, channels of escalation, um, you, if any employees are um, having difficulties um, reaching out and, and telling them about the, the, the myriad of options available to them. I think that sort of mental health side has really come out and employers have, have, have massively focused on it. Um, I think with this becoming a bit of a norm now for the foreseeable future, where employers have been turning a bit of a blind eye to is desk place set up from home, um, with home working sort of moving into the long term, I think employers um, and employees are going to start really turning turning their mind to this and saying, uh, you know, my back my back's sore, I'm working at a laptop, my chair is not good enough. Um, I need to have a proper assessment, I need to have the proper equipment when I'm working from home. And I think that's something that whilst employers have been turning a blind eye to uh, in the short term, that's going to be more of a long term thing. And I think as we look ahead, you know, we could see a lot more homeworking going forward and that's going to be something that, that employers will have to turn their mind to, and, and it could lead to, to grievance and, and whistleblowing disclosures, of course. Um, and, and one real sort of sidebar point in this that I've heard many clients uh, talk about is that 
the messages that have been coming from senior stakeholders in business around working from home, the fact that effectively everyone can do their job from home, um, if you know, and and points like that will nearly be copied and copied and pasted into future flexible working requests. So, I think that moving forward, when we move out of this period, it's going to be very hard to to turn down those types of requests. Yeah, I, I think you make a good a good point around that. So, I suppose in short, there is still a duty to undertake risk assessments and ensure that the home working environment is also. Uh, providing a safe system of work for, for employees and, of course, to keep that under review. Um, let's move on to the question of temperature testing and other types of, of medical screening. We, we are aware that a number of employers have been giving some thought to whether it is desirable to introduce te temperature screening on entering a building or perhaps um, having employees uh, fill out an online medical questionnaire before they attend work in person. Sarah, I'm interested in whether the, the guidance mandates this for employers um, with returning employees or whether whether it's recommended in the guidance as, as good practice. Yeah, and just before I answer that question, I'm going to make a shameless plug for another seminar that we're running later on today at 2.30, um, which is specifically looking at medical screening. And um, that's going to involve not just the employment aspects, but in a much more deeper dive on data privacy and also the regulatory aspects of medical screening. So if anyone on the call has the details for that session um, at 2.30 today, please do let one of us know and we'll be happy to send that through to you. I think that um, if you are considering this, this that is a, a must session to attend. And, and as you say, Becky, from the conversations we've all been having with clients, um, they, there is much greater focus now on medical screening in connection with the return to work. We certainly had conversations with clients pre-lockdown about the use of medical screening. And at that stage, it was still sort of seen as something that would be very unusual, something employees wouldn't be receptive to, um, and employers were very concerned about not only the obligations they have towards employees' privacy and, and confidentiality, but obviously the overriding data protection concerns too. However, as we started to work through the pandemic, and, and particularly relying on the experiences um, in Asia, um, the use of screening is now becoming a much more accepted um, process. And in fact, many um, countries across Europe, including the UK, um, have got guidance from their um, data protection offices um, on the use of screening. And even in those countries where privacy is at a very high esteem, and even they are coming around to the fact that privacy, uh, sorry, with screening is actually something that would be very welcomed and incre increasingly helpful in discharging health and safety obligations. And um, that said, the government's guidance on return to work is absolutely silent on screening, which is um, unhelpful. Um, it doesn't look at the merits of um, online medical questionnaires, which, as you mentioned, a lot of employers are considering employees complete before they can come back. And it also doesn't look at um, other forms of testing, such as immunity and antibody testing. So instead, employers are left to grapple with the merits of this and how they actually do it themselves. Um, as I mentioned, the Data Protection Office, the ICO, has released guidance um, on this only yesterday, um, so hot off the press. Um, but it, it is actually incredibly helpful, and it's quite short, so it's definitely worth a read if any of you are considering this as part of the return to work plan. Um, the ICO makes it very clear that data protection does not prevent you from taking steps to protect employee health, um, but you do obviously have obligations in how you handle personal data. And in this case, obviously, the, the data about people's health falls into special category data, so it's got the additional obligation. Now, as any of us who have grappled with GDPR will know, you can't rely on consent to process employee data due to the um, specific constraints around consent. So instead, you'd be relying on legitimate interests as the basis for processing. And for the special category data, you'd be relying on your obligations under the employment contract um, and, of course, your health and safety obligations to your employees. The ICO guidance recommends that you undertake an impact assessment before you actually put screening in place. So looking at exactly what activity you're proposing, how you're actually going to do this screening, who's going to do it, where it will be done, what are the data protection risks associated with it, is the action necessary and proportionate, and what mitigants can you put in place, 
and how will you put those in place? Um, but also to review and update regularly the way that you're doing it. And I think this is where the sort of herd pack mentality I mentioned earlier will come in. Um, you'll quite often see others doing it in a way and think about how you should adjust yours accordingly. You should only collect and retain the minimum amount of information you need, um, so no unnecessary or excessive information. Um, the purpose of the information and the context in which you'll be using it needs to be made very clear to employees. The key piece here is transparency, so employees really understand what they're being monitored for and how the data that you collect is going to be used. And interestingly, the ICO does make it clear that you can keep a list of employees who have had symptoms or who have tested positive, which is incredibly helpful, um, but only if that's necessary and, necessary and relevant to the stated purpose, which I think you'll be able to get over that hurdle. And of course, any processing of that information and that list um, needs to be secure and, and kept in confidence. The other thing that's very helpful is that you are able to tell other employees if there is one of their colleagues who has tested positive um, or who has symptoms. Now, the ICO uh, makes it clear that you should try to do so without naming people where you can, but hasn't put a blanket ban on that. Um, and I think you know, that, again, is quite consistent with the approach people were taking before lockdown when somebody reported suffering from COVID symptoms or living with somebody who had COVID symptoms, that you quite often would have to have conversations with your staff about people they were in contact with um, and what they would need to do if they were a person B or a person C, depending on how um, far removed they were in that contact. Um, so the ICO guidance is very good at underpinning the process that we were all following. Um, in advance of this session, we had a few questions from people, so thank you very much for those. Um, someone asked, what do you do if someone refuses to be screened? Um, well, of course, if they refuse to be screened, then you can refuse to let them into the workplace, but then what happens after that? Um, if they can work from home, then they should be continuing to work from home anyway under the guidance. But if they can't work from home and they're not actually sick, then you face a very difficult decision as an employer. Um, do you dismiss them? Um, do you require them to take some form of unpaid leave, treat it as unauthorised absence? Um, Robbie's going to come on to talk in a bit about the risk of a claim under Section 4.4 of the ERA, where the employee thinks has a reasonable belief that um, they are at risk if they attend the workplace. So you could find yourself butting up against um, those kind of claims if you take that approach. And obviously, if the employee is successful, um, a dismissal would be automatically unfair. So I think the better approach here is to make sure that you have good constructive conversations with the employee in question as to why they don't want to come back, what sort of adjustments you can make to try to allay the concerns that they've got, and make sure that obviously the things that you've already got in place have been well consulted with anyway, and that you've been adapting them to fit um, what others are doing and what's considered to be best practice which will then make, put you in a stronger basis for saying that your request for them to come in is a reasonable one and their refusal to do so is unreasonable. Someone else asked about um, getting employees to sign, to sign a disclaimer if it turns out that the um, test that you've done turns out is inaccurate. Um, I think that's unlikely to be attractive because if there's a risk the test is inaccurate, then employees are going to say, well, what's the point of screening me anyway? Um, you're relying on it as the basis upon which I can return to the workplace. Um, but if you don't think it's accurate, then you're not giving me much confidence in the test itself. Um, I think something that clearly sets out to employees what the limits of the tests are um, is helpful because the World Health Organization has been quite clear that these tests, um, whether it be temperature screening or the antibody immunity testing, are not 100% accurate. Um, so I think it is important that employees understand that that's as they um, undertake the screening. And of course, the online medical questionnaires that we mentioned would be a useful tool to use alongside screening. Um, it's unlikely just by doing medical testing that you're going to absolve yourself of liability, either for personal injury or worse still, corporate manslaughter, um, where the test is whether the injury suffered was reasonably foreseeable. Um, but combined with taking other measures to protect health and safety in the workplace in accordance with the guidance and with employee consultation will, of course, assist you. And even then, an employee would need to establish causation, so the fact that they contracted COVID-19 as a result of your failings. 
which I think will be very difficult for them to do in a number of situations. Um, it's worth just flagging here as a um, slight side point that there's been uh, guidance issued to the coroner's office about how to investigate workplace and um, also any, any deaths related to um, COVID-19. Um, so I think that's something that employers need to very much have in mind in terms of managing this liability and ensuring that they have got proper processes in place. Thanks, Sarah. And I, I, you know that's something of a gloomy spectre, but I think it is worth uh, highlighting uh, the likelihood that the coroner's court may well indeed be the first fora in which um, issues over adequacy and quality of protection available to workers will be um, investigated publicly. So, with that in mind, and Sarah, um, you know, at risk of preventing you going on mute and having some of your coffee um, at this early hour of the morning, um, I'd like to turn to the question of workplace organisational design and the extent to which we see within the guidance substantial changes that may be needed to the physical design of workplaces. Yeah, sure. Um, so the guidance is quite um, extensive on this, actually, and some of the redesign could have proved to be pretty costly. Um, so the starting point is obviously maintaining the two metres social distancing where possible, and um, recognising that, of course, it simply won't be possible in a number of workplaces. Um, and there was there been a number of press stories already about people who are, who are already back at work in factories, in warehouses, on building sites. Um, also in laboratories, where it's just um, impossible to keep that kind of distancing. Um, so the, the, the guidance looks at trying to sever staff arrivals and departure times from work, and trying to ensure that you've got additional parking and facilities such as bike racks and to help people if they want to cycle into work, and making sure that you've got some changing facilities for those who may want to run in, um, encouraging people to walk in where they can, having one-way walkthroughs, and operating more entrances and exits, and changing seating layouts in communal spaces. Um, where the two-metre distancing can't be maintained, and um, putting barriers in place, um, I've spoken to a number of clients who are looking about putting up the um, screens between desks in open plan environments, such as the screens you see being used in supermarkets, and creating workplace shift patterns or fixed so you only have a certain number of people in at any one time. They then go home and you bring in um, team B to come in and replace them. Um, and even ensuring colleagues are facing away from each other rather than sitting opposite each other. So if you've got a desk bank system in your um, open plan office, um, maybe cancelling out each other desk um, and making sure that people are sitting diagonally or back to back rather than directly opposite each other. And the, test, the guidance on laboratories um, has some specific guidance here around making sure that you minimise the number of people in a laboratory at any one time, um, reducing the use of high-touch items such as testing equipment, um, and making sure you've got good filtering systems when it comes to um, air conditioning, which I'll, I'll come back onto in a moment. Um, obviously, the issue around multiple occupancy of a building um, is a bit of a challenge for, for many of us. Um, because there'll be certain parts of the building which we just cannot have responsibility for. Um, I'd suggest that if you're in that situation to speak to the managing agent of the property, many of whom have started to issue their own guidance and details of how they plan to address social distancing. Um, I've been having a look at some of them actually and I think they're quite helpful. So things around how they manage reception and front of house and again using those plexiglass screening and touch-free sanitizer avoiding the use of push plate doors, revolving doors, and even security gates may be lifted. Um, small things um, that I wouldn't have thought about, such as um, removing reading material from reception, because I see, as we know, um, COVID can uh, linger on things, as people are picking things up that someone else has just put down. Um, lifts, I've been asked so many questions about lifts in the last few weeks, I feel like I'm becoming a, somewhat of an expert. Um, obviously, the, the idea would be one person in the lift at any one time, but I think we all recognise in those of us who are in um, large buildings that that simply will take you all day to get to your desk and you've had to come back down again. Um, so making use of things like the goods list to ferry people around in may be helpful, um, or at least reducing the number of people in the lift. And of course, where people can use the stairs, um, that would be um, sensible. 
and again having hand-free sanitizer near lifting entrances. Um, communal areas such as cafes and meeting rooms, um, making sure you adjust the layout there and um, to keep the social distancing, um, reducing the number of people in the cafes, grab and go, pre-ordering rather than sort of hanging around deciding for 10 minutes what you want to eat um, will obviously be useful. Toilets is another big concern for people. Um, so uh, some of the guidance for the managing agents have put out is around sink banks. So rather than using every sink, then you take every second sink out of use. Um, the same thing with those who have urinals. Um, again, using touch-free soap dispensers and replacing towel dryers with paper towels. Um, someone very kindly asked a question about air conditioning um, in the run-up to this session, and um, I am by no means an expert on air conditioning systems, but having read some of these managing property um, agent um, guidance, they do have some quite useful things on this, um, so such as reducing the speed of the air conditioning um, two hours after the building stops being used and then bringing it back up to normal speed two hours before. Um, so obviously when you've got the bulk of your people in the workplace um, is operating normally but reducing it um, at times of less usage. Um, and of course at nights and weekends as well they recommend not switching it off but keeping it running at low speed. Um, and alongside that obviously regular um, replacement of filters and maintenance work. Um, so hopefully that helps whoever's um, had a, a question on that. Thanks, Sarah. I mean, the, the thing that strikes me is that um, there's an awful lot to do, isn't there? There's a lot of detail in that, and it really, it really requires employers to um, look at every element and very granular elements of the the way that we work. Um, think it, thinking about that, you know, pen on reception where you sign in um, to office buildings and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's let's move to the question of. PPE, Robbie, because PPE has been something that um, a vexed issue in the press for all sorts of reasons, not least the, the sort of lim the limited supply of it um, to certain sectors of our workforce at the moment. Um, what does the guidance say about the use of PPE, and is it going to be incumbent on employers to provide PPE, such as masks or gloves? Um, Sarah's already touched on hand sanitizer. Yeah, I think that the I think that the overarching point here is the public policy point where we don't have enough PPE for for frontline staff. We've heard of all the issues with with the NHS not getting the PPE care homes. I, I think this is where the government want the vast majority of PPE to go to. So the guidance on it is is not surprising in that it states that it's unnecessary and precautionary use should not be encouraged. Um, you know, so so you need to really assess. Um, where there's, as an employer, where there's a very high risk of disease transmission, um, and only in those cases is PPE considered to provide very limited uh, additional protection. So those risk assessments will will be important, and, and there'll be some employers out there where there may be some you know, small select members of their staff where when they when they go through the risk assessment that will show that there is a high risk of disease. And then in those situations, uh, and those situations only, will you want to consider a PPE? Um, I, I don't think that's surprising, and I don't think it's surprising that there is the level of detail then um, around what Sarah's just been talking about, around workplace um, organisational design, the, the amount of money that will need to be put into that to, to really make it work. Um, the movement towards making um, keeping people at home were at all necessary, uh, and all of the points about hand sanitizers. When you look at those type of issues, you're getting a lot more guidance from from the government. I think that shows sort of the direct, the um, direction of travel of where the government want, want employees to get to. The, the one funny thing is that PPE and face masks have been separated into two different things, um, and and in terms of transport and the read across, um, you'll see that face coverings are viewed. Um, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a guidance where the government wants you to have a face mask of some type if you're traveling on, on public transport. And this is where employers may um, consider providing face masks um, free of charge to, the, to their employees to assist them um, and to, to exist, um, assist the anxiety levels um, on their return to work. Um, the only last point is that if you do go through the assessment, uh, EP is required, it must be provided um, free of charge to workers who need it. 
Thanks, Robbie. I want to pick up on um, your reference to transport because I think the transport problem, um, at least for those employers that um, have workforces in busy hubs, is going to be one of the most challenging aspects of the return to the workplace. We have an incredibly crowded transport system and many workers are going to have varying levels of anxiety about getting to work. Um, does the guidance look to address this by proposing specific measures that will help alleviate the pressure on transport systems and make it a more comfortable decision for employers to come to the office lobby? It, it didn't at the start. So what came out on Monday night, those guides didn't provide much. And I think this is this is one of the biggest issues we're hearing from from employers, especially those in in big cities where where their employees need to come in um, through public transport. Um, there was guidance that was that was issued separately yesterday um, for passengers, which with advice on safer travel, um, and it really focused around things like the the helpful and the obvious of staying at home where where possible, um, staggered. Uh, working times for from employers so that employees are not coming in on rush hour um, where possible walking cycling using a car uh, picking up on on Sarah's point on ventilation you can still share a car um, with another individual if that's how you get into work but you should keep your windows down to, to ventilate the car and that you should wash the car after each use um, and then other points such as um, if you're coming into say London City on the tube, you should get out of the tube and, and walk the last mile. So when you're, whenever you're in the, the busiest part of the tube journey, um, you're, you're going to be walking. Um, so all of these points are all really brought in to, um, to, to, to lower the risk. But, but it's something that employers can't really get away from, that if employ, employees are coming in on the tubes, on the buses, um, that there is going to be a, a necessary risk of travel and that is going to create, um, you know, anxiety from employees and and issues being raised to, um, to their employers. Um, There's a really knotty issue, isn't it? Because, um, well, we've got that provision in the Employment Rights Act, um, Section 44, that protects an employee from detriment in circumstances where where they refuse to return to their place of work because they reasonably believe that there's a serious and imminent danger to them. And I think. Um, as I read that provision, it doesn't expressly say that the danger has to be present in the workplace itself, um, which would arguably mean it extends to a danger present during their commute to work, for example, on the tube system. H how practically can employers respond to employees that are raising concerns of this nature with them, Robbie? Yeah, I, I, and I think that's absolutely right. And I think that the, the government guidance on travel and, and the, the way that it specifically brings in travel to work um, arguably does extend Section 44 uh, rights for employees to the travel into work. And of course, Section 44 um, applies to detriment claims and there's the corresponding um, automatic dismissal right claims um, under, under Section 100. And this risk, and it's it's sort of looking at it in the round, but these types of concerns can, of course, lead to, to whistleblowing disclosures. So there's a multitude of protections that employers need to consider um, whenever employees are saying, I'm scared of coming into work, I'm scared of the risk it's going to cause me, um, especially if they've got, say, dependents, um, uh, they've got vulnerable people in their family. You know, These are all things that, that are really going to need to be considered carefully um, by employers. And I think that you cannot um, create immunity for employers, as, as Sarah has already, has already touched on. All you can do at this time is really mitigate the risks. So uh, for employers, they'll need to follow the guidance, um, including as it is updated. And as we find doing this talk, it's updated regularly. Um, secondly, set up and implement all protections employers reasonably can. Um, and that's really going a bit above where the guidance is. So, for example, consider face masks being provided if your employees are coming in the tubes. Um, consider flexible working times. Um, consider, as Sarah's touched on, you know, screening for temperatures. These are all things that should come into the employer's consideration when they're going through the risk assessments. Uh, thirdly, you need to consult, negotiate, agree the measures with the workforce um, and the elected representatives as appropriate. Um, fourthly, where employees raise concerns, you know, listen to them, see if compromises can be found. And finally, fifthly, 
uh, consider whether there are further factors which increase risk, so disability and the need to make reasonable adjustments. Now, I think if you if you go through those points, you can you can mitigate risks, but you can't you can't get away from it. This is a risky area. Yeah. So, so plain devil's advocate in a situation where an employer holds a very strong view that the employee needs to be back in the physical workplace and that employee is refusing, are you saying that an employer can't dismiss employees in those situations? No, uh, thankfully we're, we're, we're in the UK uh, where dismissal is always an option. Um, there, there could be a cost to it, but, but dismissal is always an option. But the law, the law already is slanted in the employee's favour on this point. And, and and all of the mood music is, is slanted against the employer as well at the moment in terms of what the government is saying, uh, what trade unions are saying. Uh, you know, Sarah's talked about the, the sort of the herd mentality, social media. Um, it, this is something really for employers to consider very carefully. And of course, the, the government guidance yesterday explicitly stated that, um, that employers need to make socially responsible decisions uh, on this. And I don't think by that they meant dismissal. Indeed, and I, doubtless there are significant reputational um, considerations as well um, around decision making of that sort of nature. Um, okay, so we've had a lot of detail on the sort of workplace organisational redesign that needs to take place and where we are with PPE. Um, how do we go about bringing about these new working systems in relation to the changes that we need to make? How practically? Does an employer go about making those changes, and what sort of communications exercises is going to involve? Sarah, I wonder whether I could turn to you on that. Yes, of course. Um, it's interesting, Vicky, as you mentioned earlier about all the um, extensive guidance on workplace redesign, um, and obviously all the issues Robbie's mentioned and how long that will take to do. And so there's a real uh, contradiction here in the guidance because the guidance requires consultation with employees about what the employer plans to do, yet anyone who listened to the Prime Minister on Sunday evening telling us all to get back to the workplace um, and to do so um, immediately, and then obviously the contradiction which then became, don't wait till Wednesday, um, will know that you couldn't possibly undertake all of those processes and do a consultation exercise ahead of people coming back to work. Um, so I think this can't mean consultation in the sense that we as employment lawyers think about in terms of doing a 30-day or 45-day consultation period with staff about all the things you're planning to do and then only at the end of those start implementing those things because you won't have people back in the workplace for months if you were to go through that. Um, I think really what we're talking about is your um, standard health and safety consultation um, uh, process. Um, so using your existing um, channels um, that you would normally consult with about health and safety duties um, and adding this onto your risk assessment, making sure that you're discussing it with um, your established channels such as trade unions, for those of you who recognise them, um, or for collective elected representatives where you don't, um, to talk to them about what you're doing, why you're doing it, um, and obviously to have a panel of communication open where they can say, well, hang on, what have you thought about doing this? Or we understand other employers in our industry are doing this, and we think this is something you should be doing. So I think it needs to be an ongoing dialogue. Um, I also think it's really important for employers to give a very clear and transparent message to employees. I think a lot of the messaging I've seen, not just obviously from the government's guidance, but more widely, um, it can be quite confusing. Um, I've seen a number of employers saying that returning to work will be voluntary and they won't be requiring anybody to um, come back if they don't wish to do so. Um, I think a lot of employees will still feel pressured to come back even with that message. Um, and I appreciate that message may be very well intentioned. Um, but I do think that a lot of employees actually want the sort of clarity of you are required to come back. Your job is one that needs to be done in the workplace um, or your job is one that needs to remain at home. And it's the uncertainty and the sort of putting the onus on the employee to make that decision that can escalate some of the feelings of anxiety and, and mental health concerns that Robbie mentioned earlier. So I think you need to be very, um, very clear about who it is you're asking to come back and why you consider those are jobs that can't be done at home, particularly in situations where perhaps they have been doing those jobs at home, albeit maybe not to the, to the full um, extent you'd want them to. Um, over the last couple of months, it would be very hard to then justify bringing these people back. 
You also are required under the guidance to share your results of any risk assessments that you do with the workforce. And if you have over more than 50 employees, to publish that on your website. Again, I can't see many people being able to do that <clears throat> ahead of people coming back to work. Well, today, obviously, it's already 20 past nine. There'll be people um, already back in the workplace, I'm sure. Um, so this, again, is going to have to be an ongoing exercise. But uh, going back to what we talked about before in terms of enforcement and sanctions, there's not going to be any hard and fast um, cut-off point for having to do this. There is the grace period. So again, just showing that you're communicating and you're being transparent is important. Um, keeping employees up to date, um, I mentioned before that the ICO allows you to tell people if um, somebody has been tested positive that they've had contact with. Um, so again, that will help employees to be able to understand the level of risk um, that they may be taking on board. Um, and as things like transport develop and, and plans develop, of course, you need to adjust your plans accordingly. Um, so thinking that through as well. Thanks very much, Sarah. So um, a lot of work on everybody's plate, I think. Um, before we conclude, I wonder whether I might uh, trouble you each for your three predictions or let's each give a prediction for the future um, from this juncture. Um, maybe, um, Sarah, I can turn to you first. Yeah, sure. And um, I guess partly prediction, but partly an area where um, we haven't discussed it is the extension of the furlough scheme. Um, you're seeing last night that the Chancellor has now extended it to the end of October. Um, so the furlough scheme is going to remain unchanged um, as it is now for the end of July. But from August to October, um, introducing a slightly revised scheme where employees can come off furlough and return to work on a part-time basis. Um, and there's um, a suggestion that employers are going to have to start sharing the salary costs of those who are on furlough. Um, we don't yet know what that means. Um, this is a recurring theme with um, this guidance. But more guidance is expected later this month. So um, watch this space on that. But I think how that links into my prediction is that we're already seeing employees who have been made redundant during the existing furlough period challenging the redundancy and challenging the fairness of it by saying, well, actually, you could have left me on furlough for a period of time and only made me redundant at the end of the furlough if it became clear that my job wasn't going to be needed um, for the longer term. Um, but also employees challenging any suggestion that they should have reduced salary or reduced working hours um, as part of coming back to work. Because if the government's going to have this sort of quasi-scheme where you can come back on a reduced hours basis but then um, benefit from the furlough scheme when you're not in the office, um, then, of course, I think employees are going to say, well, I'd rather be taking that option than taking um, a longer-term pay cut and hours cut. Um, so I think, from my, for me, the prediction is around um, the greater challenge of some of the things employers are seeking to put in place to manage the economic costs of um, the workforce. Um, and whether that's going to see an uptick in claims around the fairness of those decisions. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, Robbie, how about you? What's your projection? Oh, there's so many, um, but I think I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll have a broad one where I, I think it's going to be complaints. And I think those complaints are going to have a multitude of forms. We've seen Section 44. Um, that's something employers haven't seen a lot of. Um, I think we're going to see a lot of complaints in that area. Um, I think we're going to see a lot of whistleblowing complaints. Um, and, and I think the other area where, where we're going to see a lot of complaints is, is collective action. Um, I think this is, this is going to be the age that uh, the, the, the sort of the younger generation in particular become more collective in terms of how they raise their complaints. And we've already seen firms such as Michigan um, sort of round up employees for those sort of collective complaints. Um, and, and I think we'll see a lot more of that, uh, especially you know, when employers are, are trying to get people back to work, um, if employers are trying to make sort of um, large scale redundancies following a, a GP transfer and a business acquisition. Um, you know, th there's going to be a lot of employees being very vulnerable, feeling very alert. Um, they will be considering whether they can get new jobs and any of those sort of times. I think there's a recipe for, for disaster in terms of um, the amount of complaints employers are going to see. So I think that we, we've talked about all of the, the points that the employers can do um, to mitigate the effects of that. But I, I think there's only so much you can do 
um, on this point, and there will be an increase. Um, I think the other the other um, part on health and safety we've we've touched on is homeworking, and I think employees will will start to become a lot more alert um, about their rights um, when they're working from home and what they want from their employer. So I think we can expect complaints in that area as well. Yeah, I suspect. Um... You're right, Robbie. I think there's going to be a lot, a lot more activity on that front. I've got to say, though, that did bring me down a bit. <laughs> it does. Think, it does. Um... But, but to, to bring me up, I'm going to I'm going to move on to question person. So, so Vicky, what's what's your what's yours? <laughs> thank, well, thanks for asking. <laughs> I've, I've tried to I've tried to take a, a glass half full approach, um, in addition to your uh, glass half empty approach. Um, so, I'm going to talk about diversity. I think that well. Speaking honestly, I think there are probably both threats and opportunities for diversity arising out of this crisis. I mean, it felt a little bit like a backward step that the gender pay reporting for this year was was, was put on hold. And I think, um, you know, in the short term, the push to get workers back into their seats before schools and other childcare facilities have, have reopened could result, you know, in a backward step in terms of. Um, Perhaps women will be more likely to pull the short straw and need to stay at home while the men um, come under pressure to to show up in person in workplaces. Um, but on the other hand, I think those employers that have transitioned to um, virtual workplaces successfully um, are going to experience a couple of things. I mean, Robbie, you've always you've already touched upon the fact that it's going to be perhaps harder to deny. Um, requests for flexible working because, you know, in many cases it's been proved that it can work. Um, and and as some leaders are actually sort of embracing the concept and talking about um, maybe taking the opportunity to reduce the amount of costly office space um, they hold. Um, there are probably not going to be many happy consequences of this terrible pandemic, but perhaps those with caring responsibilities and those living with certain disabilities will find themselves with an opportunity to have um, improved uh, participation in the workforce, which you know, could be a good thing. And I'm also optimistic that the, the crisis, I think, is going to shine a spotlight on the value of having a diverse and inclusive workforce. Um, you know, never has innovation and creativity been more important as we all respond to the daily challenges of this disease. I think having diverse perspectives around the decision-making table um, better enables the business to think around corners um, and of course in a human crisis like this where the relational skills are going to come to the fore um, so i think you know there's a good there's a good basis to have have hope that some employers are going to seize this opportunity to disrupt um, there's going to be a lot of critical decision making to be made in the, the weeks and months to come and you know real opportunities for diverse groups and individuals to, to show their worth so otherwise in-house council commented to, to Sarah and I recently, it's going to be complex getting this particular toothpaste back into the tube. Um, but we appreciate everybody's time joining us on this call today uh, to discuss it. And we'll be circulating a summary of our key messages and a recording of this call in the next few days. In the meantime, of course, if anybody does have any questions, please do feel free to give any of us a call. Um, and that just leaves me to say on behalf of Sarah, Robbie and myself, enjoy the rest of your week and stay safe.